Now, I think that you may have heard the song, and I know that we're out of Christmas season, and I'm not going to torture you with my singing um, at all, but you know that I want a hippopotamus for Christmas, <laughs> only a hippopotamus will do. You know, there, there are people who actually have had hippopotami, if you will. I don't know if that's the correct plural, but that's the most, way, fun, most fun way to say plural, hippopotamuses, I think, is hippopotami. Um, there's people that have had it as a pet, and it hasn't always worked out so well. And I don't mean to make light of a tragedy, but in 2020, there was a man, and I'm going to show you his picture, um, that he raised a hippopotamus from birth. And he loved his hippopotamus, and most of the time, his hippopotamus loved him back. A hippopotamus is a vegetarian, and so you wouldn't think you'd really have much to worry about from a hippopotamus with them being a herbivore, Um, but if you ate salad all day and you still looked like that, you might be an angry person as well. (laughs) But there there came a day, and we can go ahead and take the picture down, Um, there came a day where it actually mauled him. And according to an online resource that I checked, about 3,000 people per year get killed by a hippopotamus. Um, Just for a little frame of reference, the average is six deaths by shark each year, about 22 from lions. And so when it comes to your Christmas list, a hippopotamus should be lower than a lion and a shark. For the things that you want. But there's a reality that the people who do this, who have these kind of pets, they take something that is, that is dangerous, that is powerful, and they become so familiar with it that they put themselves in a circumstance that becomes dangerous to themselves. They lose the healthy fear and respect that they should have for that creature. And I want to tell you that we, we as churchgoers and as Christians and people who are around the house of God for a long time, we run a risk of being so comfortable in the things of church that we miss the importance and the power of what is happening. We miss the holiness and the majesty and the worth of the God that we serve. And we often get into these habits of doing church things and we miss the critically important part of worship and service to the Lord, which is the heart. Because God has spoken to his people and specifically in the book of Amos, but throughout history, he's looked at them at times and said, your worship In in the book of Amos, he actually said, I hate all of your songs and your festivals. And it wasn't because they brought the wrong main dish to the meal. It's because the main thing of worship and singing to God is the heart. And today, I was going to start a series today, but I pushed it off till next week. and, and, And we'll get into that because I just felt... This impression from God to remind us about who it is that we worship. Because all of our service, all of our songs, 
all of our giving, it has to go back to having this heart right between us and God. Because not only does it lose its meaning if our heart isn't right, it will eventually become destructive to us if we ever lose the vision that this is all about him. And so we're going to look through three different passages today. If you have your Bible with you and you want to get, get your thumb in the, the different places, we're, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 6, Nehemiah chapter 8, and Revelations chapter 3. So if you like to work ahead and have those, uh, I want you to know where we're going. Um, just within this topic, I remember back when I was in college, and this was before the social media days really took off. And so when something, you know, something dramatic happened, you just got to hear about it through word of mouth. You didn't just get to read it. And so I remember talking at the table about something that happened in one of the, the more well-known professor's classrooms uh, at our Bible college. And in, in Professor Collier's classroom, he always liked to have the class start by having one of the students pray. And these are all Bible students, and so they, they should know how to pray. This is upper level stuff. This isn't freshman stuff anymore. In one of the classes, he asked a student to open in prayer and just called on one. And the student began his prayer and said, hey, buddy. And Mr. Collier immediately said, that's enough. We'll go ahead and start class. And that could be considered harsh to interrupt someone in prayer. But Professor Collier in his view of God's holiness, scripture does call him our friend in so certain circumstances. But even the friendship that we have with God, there is a certain reverence that we should bring as we speak to him. When we bring our worship, when we bring our prayers, it's not that it has to be this formula in this high level of speech, but there needs to be a recognition of the person that we speak to and the heavenly host that surrounds him. And I think that the, the book of Isaiah begins to draw out a good picture of this. When Isaiah had this vision where he was caught up and he was brought before the Lord. And we're going to read and starting in verse three, and I'll read to you. And Isaiah, in this time where Israel is in disobedience to God, and he's warning them that I'm going to take you out of the land if you don't begin to walk in my ways again. And he get, brings Isaiah up for this vision, and, and he describes what, what, what the picture was of this throne room of God. And within the throne room of God, the, the, the train of his robe, the end piece of his robe was so big that it filled the temple in what he, what he could see. And there was these heavenly beings that surrounded God with worship. And their worship, it was so powerful that, that it, it shook everything that was around him. And Isaiah was a holy person. He was a prophet of God. If anyone would have felt like they had the right to stand before God and just be like, I deserve to be here. It would have been someone like a prophet. But, but look how the interaction goes in verse three. It says, and that they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook. And the temple was filled with smoke and woe to me. I cried, I am ruined for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a, peop among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord almighty. There was this recognition that God 
is so holy that it is terrifying even to the person who walks closely with him. I want to make sure that that thought is instilled in us as we bring our worship, that we don't deserve to be in this place where our words are heard by our heavenly father, but he so loves us that he brings us in because what Christ has done, we are seen as holy and he gives ear to our speech, but we don't deserve it. He is holy. The the temple, it, it was It was the biggest thing that the Hebrew people knew to compare as far as a structure goes. And when he describes the majesty and the size and the power of God, it says the train of his robe, it just filled the temple. It's giving credence to this fact that he was so big that that our mind couldn't make sense of it. And the songs that were sung about him, it made just even the foundations feel like they were going to give way. And what I need to remember and you need to remember is this majestic vision of God's throne room is where you have access to. Where your heavenly father looks down at your heart and your words and your praise and it comes before him. And I think that habit and what's temporal that's just around our eyes, the stresses, the worries of today's, the the what will the meal be, the what will the what chores will get done. We've allowed those to cloud the power of this fact that God hears us. He is holy that he hates sin, but he loves the sinner enough to send his son to bring them back. And the way that we speak about him, the way that we speak to him, it matters. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you were just frozen by fear. If you haven't, it might sound strange, but, but there is this truth that there is the capacity within your body to be in a circumstance where you are so terrified that you cannot even move your arms, that you cannot speak a word. So much more so than the spider who crawled out and made you jump and scream. So much bigger than that. And the God who loves you is also the God that if you were confronted with the vision of who he is, his glory would be blinding. He would be too much to take in. You have to begin to understand that his capacities, that even his speech formed the universe. And this is an important realization because it should shape the way that we speak to him. It should shape the way that we praise him. It should also shape our confidence when we pray to him. That if God is so big, he is so majestic, he is so holy, he is so powerful that when I speak to him and I know that he hears me, I know that he has the capacity and the strength to fulfill what I ask. 
And this is one of the other dangers when we begin to make God small. It's amazing how we begin to shape him more and more into our own image. That we assume that he agrees with all of our politics. He prefers our taste in music. He even likes his coffee made the way that I like my coffee made. Like it's a strange thing that God becomes more and more like us instead of us becoming more and more like him. And I think the more and more that God becomes like us, the less and less dependent on prayer we become because we just assume that God can't do anything about it because we can't do anything about it. So if you continue to shape God into an image that looks just like you, God is going to become less and less powerful and less and less important because you will see it as God failing you more and more the same way that you have failed yourself more and more. But when we allow ourselves to be formed into the image of Christ, shaped by him, taught by his scriptures, and this is the thing, oh, the way that we read his scriptures, I don't think that we allow the weight of his voice to be heard in our life. That when we come across an instruction, we treat it as an option. That we think that in our wisdom, we will be above the ways of God. And when you think through the power and the truth that these are God's words that are written to you, that this is his love letter and instruction on life. And you allow it to carry the weight of the one who is eternal. You will read it differently. You will trust it differently. And there should be part of our inmost being of our soul that shakes as we get to experience his word written to us. That all scripture is God breathed. This is coming from the heart and the mouth of God to us in our situation. And so when we hear it, when we feel it, when we sense it, when we study it, We need to allow it to do its work in our life. Just as simple as the cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. The beings of heaven, they they understand. But I think that we question and we miss where God's glory here is on the earth. We almost shy away from talking about how great he is at times. And I want to encourage you, see it the way that it really is. Everywhere you look, you will see the majesty of God written across his creation. And every moment of our day, there there are opportunities to worship this God who deserves our worship. That same place where the angels cry out is the same place where our prayers resound before the throne room of God. And we are told by scripture to enter it confidently. Knowing that we have Jesus who sits at the right hand of God and acts on our behalf. 
This is an incredibly powerful truth that should shape the way that we pray. We, we need to realize, we need to realize, we need to realize how majestic our heavenly father is. There's a realization that today's message isn't going to have wordy poetic points to it. It's just two simple words today. The first is realize. I need you to realize who your heavenly father is. And maybe you've realized it before in the past, but you need to be reminded of that today. But I'm going to look at him and I'm going to realize how powerful he is, how great he is, how eternal he is, how loving he is, how much he hates sin, how much he challenges me and corrects me. I'm going to realize all of these things about his character and I'm going to allow them to be true, independent of who I've been. I'm not going to define him by my experience. I'm going to define him by who he is and who scripture says that he is. And I'm going to know that his goodness will be on display in my life. So we need to make the realization, but it can't just stop at the realization that the second word from today is respond. We can mentally enjoy the interaction of saying how great is our God. How incredible it is it that, that if you just catch the little smallest piece of his glory, it will just light your, your life on fire. Like it, it'll make you feel incredible. How great is that? So neat. Now I'm just going to go back to doing things my way. We can make realizations and never actually make applications, but we have to respond. We have to respond to the truth. If we recognize and say, yes, it is true. He is worthy of all of my effort. And when I, when I talk about worship and effort and strength and putting it into worship, I, I mean physically, I mean emotionally. And guys, I will push on you because I know you can get emotional. You have cried about sports in your lifetime and I know it. <laughs> but men, especially, we often put a wall up around our emotions and heart when it comes to the things of God. And we need to say, God, all of my heart, all of my strength, all of my soul, all of my mind is yours. And so I will worship you in the way that I think. I will take every thought captive. In the way that I feel, the way that I express my emotions, because you are worthy, I will not care what other people around me are thinking as I sing praise to you. My heart will be yours and be fully yours alone. And so I realize that you're worthy of the worship, but I will respond and actually worship you with my heart. Because we don't want to go the way of Israel, who God said, yeah, you're having the festivals, you're singing the songs, you're giving the offerings, but it's all meaningless. We were actually talking just before church today and I was saying, because I was like, man, you're in my notes already. Like, like when it comes to singing, it's more about the heart than the noise. So has your heart been, has your heart been in the things of God lately? Because you can recognize that it hasn't, but then you can still never do anything. And so we need to begin to respond. 
And so in Isaiah, God was warning the people. He, he brought Isaiah up to give him a mission and, and, and a message to the people that if you don't change your ways, you're going to go into exile. And they didn't change and they went into exile. And then in the book of Nehemiah, they're being brought back after being away from the temple, the things of God, the, the nation that God had given them. And then in Nehemiah chapter eight, we have this, this glimpse of one of the first major worship services that happened as all the people were coming back. And it's interesting because at the beginning of the chapter, it says everyone who was capable of understanding, basically it said all those who could understand were gathered as one person. And, and it says those who can understand. And as I was studying and prepping for this, I, sometimes I have to say, this is what a the theologian said, because if I don't say that, you'd be like, Paul said that, I should send him an angry email. This, is, this wasn't me. This is just a theologian. And I'm just going to happen to read it to you because I want you to have good background on it. And, and he said that infants and idiots were not to be at this service. It was those who could understand. But if an infant had to be brought for the sake of the mother so that she didn't miss the worship, that was acceptable but he didn't give any inclusion to idiots. So generally there should have been more infants than idiots at this worship service. And then he, the theologian actually applied that to church as well, that it should be because there's this truth that if you come into worship in a state that you're not going to apply what is going to be taught, it's just as good that you not be there. Like if you're just going to be there getting in the way of other people, you may as, not, may as well not be there. Now that's not an excuse for you to not be here. That's an excuse for you to stop acting like an idiot if you have been. If you've been in the place of I'm around here, but I'm never applying, I'm never actually interacting with God. This is not about him. This is just about me, about social position, about keeping family members happy. You need to get to the place within your heart where you say, I am here to worship God. And the people who are gathering in Nehemiah chapter eight, they, they, they hadn't been in worship in their lifetime. And so as they're being taught the law that God gave them in their land, they're hearing it for the first time. And it says that there, there's a whole list of priests and teachers who are teaching and helping make sense to them the law because the, the laws were not writ, were written in Hebrew and a lot of them spoke the language of, of Babylon. And so they, they needed extra explanation. And so we're going to pick up in verse eight of chapter eight. And it says that they read from the book of the law of God and clearly explained the meaning of, of what was being read, helping the people understand each passage. Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were interpreting for the peoples said to them, don't mourn or weep on such a day as this. For, day, for today is sa a sacred day before the Lord your God. For the people had all been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. And Nehemiah continued Go and celebrate with a feast of rich foods and sweet drinks and share gifts of food with people who have nothing prepared. This is a sacred day before our Lord. Don't be dejected and sad for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, this is the interesting thing. People who had been living their life, their entire life in a way that was probably dishonoring to God, they had probably slid into the cultural norms of the society that they were living in. When they heard the truth of how they should live, there was a sense of remorse and weeping. But the leadership said, they said, no, you, you guys, this is cause for celebration. We're getting it right now. We're moving in the right direction now. So go and have a great meal. Go to Outback. Get the steak. 
Make it a great time. Let the kids buy a soda at the table. Like all of that, like get dessert. Share, buy a meal for somebody else if they can't afford it. Like go and celebrate. This is a, this is a holy time. This is a holy day. This is a cause for, for celebration that you're going to get it right now. We're so afraid of having gotten it wrong that it keeps us from ever making a correction. And within the kingdom of God, there is a joy about saying, I messed up, but I am turning directions. I am repenting. That's what it means to repent is I'm changing directions. I often get questions. Well, what if someone repents and they don't really mean it? Well, then they didn't repent. (laughs) They gave you lip service and no one ever fools God. We don't fool God with our worship. We don't fool God with false repentance. He knows. And when there is true repentance, it should lead to celebration and joy. Because that is what is happening in heaven at the moment of repentance. To make sure you see and respond to your heavenly father correctly is to recognize that when you come back to him, there is joy, not punishment. Because all of the punishment was paid for at the cross of Jesus Christ. And so when he sees a child coming home, he meets them halfway. He scoops them up and he brings them inside of the house and he throws a celebration. When that child thought that there would be mourning and weeping, God says, no, it's a holy moment. You're mine again. So in Nehemiah, they were told to celebrate in Revelations chapter three, where where there's some instructions written to specific churches that on this topic, I felt like this was the right landing point for this message. And we're going to go through a little bit of a longer section in this, but we're going to start at verse 14. And it says, write this letter to the angel of the church in Laodicea. This is the message for the one. This is the message from the one who is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's new creation. I know all the things you do that are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other, but since you are lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. The church that's being written here too is a church that has a sense of because of my wealth, I don't have much need of God. And that statement should be felt throughout most of the American churches in the United States. Because we often treat God as someone that we're benevolent towards rather than someone who has given us everything that we have. And we're given the warning that God's view of the lukewarm, God's view of the people in the middle is, you know, it it would be easier to do this if you were cold. It would be easier to reject you if you were cold, but I don't accept anything except those who are on fire for me. And so the lukewarm and the cold, they both get rejected. And how I wish you would just pick one side because you're hurting yourself and you're hurting other people by living in the middle. 
And for us in our worship of God, I want to encourage you. I want to challenge you to see God for all that he is. Because when you see him for all that he is, it will inspire worship that is meaningful, that is powerful, that will keep your heart burning for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think when we lose sight of who he is, we lose sight of who we are supposed to be. And so we have to keep that vision accurate of him so that we know how we're supposed to live. Band, if you guys will make your way up, I'm going to begin to close this out. And so the passage continues and it says, you think that you think that you're rich, that you have everything you want. You think that you don't need a thing and you don't realize that you're wretched, miserable, poor, and blind and naked. And to verse 18, it says, so I advise you to buy gold from me, gold that has been purified by fire. Then you will be rich and buy white garments from me so that you will not be shamed by your nakedness and ointment for your eyes. So you will be able to see all of these things are illustrations of true heavenly treasure. It's talking about gold, things that really will matter. Things will matter forever. Acts of service, acts of worship, acts of love to be clothed in the garments of white that God provides us to be clothed in holiness. Ointment is true healing that comes from God. And to verse 19, and I correct and discipline everyone I love. So be diligent and turn from your indifference. If I choose sin, if I do things God's way, whatever. If I give up my time, if I just relax and do what I want to do all the time, it's fine. If I financially give or if I just spend all of it on myself, it's all right. It's not a sense of hatred towards the things of God. It's just a sense of indifference. Whichever way it goes, if we make it to church, all right. If we make it to serving, all right. If we are generous with our neighbor, all right. What, but, but whatever, it's fine. It doesn't matter. Whereas the Christian, the Christ follower, should have a sense of, I have to find the opportunities because my heavenly father is worthy of all of the glory and all of the honor and all of the praise. And so I'm going to find ways. I'm going to make ways. I'm going to knock on doors. I'm going to create opportunities because he is worth it. And because my life on earth is so short that I will not miss opportunities to serve him. Before, because for all of eternity, there will be a reflection of what we did here on earth. And so I won't be indifferent to how I live my life. Because the way that Jesus speaks to us is like this in verse 20, where he says, look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. Those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat, sat with my father on his throne. He knocks at the door. He calls you into something meaningful, something deeper. You'll choose whether or not you hear him. You'll choose whether or not you ignore him. So many people have heard the knock but never gone to the door. They've heard God calling them into something more meaningful, something more missional. But they've been indifferent to the opportunity church.
God gives you moments. Many people within my own circle of life right now, we, we jo- just lost somebody who was 40 years old. Teenage kids. A lot of life before him. None of us have a single promise of another day. So let's live each day with passion and purpose because he is worthy of our praise. Let's pray. God, would your message and your truth go throughout our city because of the way that we live, because of the way that we worship, because of the way that we're generous with other people, by the way that we treat our neighbor, would it all be worship to you? And as we pray and as we praise before your throne, would our heart and our mind recognize the tremendous weight of this opportunity, that the angels in heaven hear our worship before your throne. Move in our hearts today, in Jesus' name.